Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. You know, I have a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Really, I do enjoy them. Even though I talk to my colleagues every day about what's happening in the legislative world, having these conversations here always makes me think of something in a different way or in a deeper way than I had thought about that issue before. So that's why I always look forward to these. But to be honest, I haven't been looking forward to today's episode. In fact, I've been kind of dreading it. That's because this episode is the last one that will feature my colleague, collaborator, and my friend, Carol Coolish. So therefore today, I'm joined by Carol, just Carol. And I want to take this opportunity to reflect on the tax legislative and tax policy world to have Carol talk to us about where the legislative process once was, where it is now, and what that might tell us about where it might be tomorrow. So with that, Carol, thank you for joining me today as we take a stroll down the legislative memory lane. My first question to you, Carol, is where are you going? Why are you leaving us? Well, thank you, John. I have to say that was just such a nice introduction and I appreciate it. And the answer is I am retiring and I am greatly looking forward to it. I will miss very, very much working with you and my other colleagues at KPMG, as well as a lot of the friends in the tax community I've made over the years. Hopefully I'll keep in touch with a lot of people, but I am tremendously looking forward to retiring and doing things that have nothing to do with tax. Well, you know, I think we've all, all of us at various points have this dream about someday just putting tax aside, but you know, you're too young, Carol, to retire, but I'm not going <laughs> to stop you. So, okay, well then let's just take a minute because you've had really a really interesting career. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the history of your career, but one of them to me, the you know most important things you did early in your career was to work on Capitol Hill as a tax writer for the Ways and Means Committee. So, I think that was really one of the first questions I wanted to ask you is having watched tax policy, tax legislation for these years, I won't say how many, uh, you can, what has changed in your view about the tax legislative process over the time of your career? Yeah, John, I will give you a little bit of background as to when it was that I worked on the Hill. I worked on Capitol Hill in the early to mid-90s, and I will say, quite frankly, I did not have a lot of experience as a tax lawyer prior to that, so it was a very eye-opening experience in a lot of ways, but one that I really, truly enjoyed. But I have seen a lot of changes over the, I hate to say the word decades, but decades since then, and I'll just highlight a few of them. First of all, as I said, I started in the early 90s. So it was several years after the Tax Reform Act of 1986. But interestingly, we still used, at the beginning of my time on the Hill, we still used the Tax Reform Act of 86 as sort of the touchstone for evaluating different policy proposals that would come to us from lobbyists, from other members of the committee. I remember writing one page memos saying, okay, this is a proposal that so and so wants. It deviates from the principles of the 86 Act because it uses the tax code to advance a social policy concern or to influence investments as opposed to letting the market just influence investments. And for those of you who don't recall, the 86 Act was bipartisan legislation and it was designed to broaden the base and lower the rates. So the whole point was let's take the tax code out of investment decisions, let's take it out of social policy decisions, just try to make it simple, make the base as broad as possible, but lower the rates in exchange. Now, by the time I left the Hill, 
that had already changed. And that was later in the 90s. And we had already started seeing what I think has been the pattern at all times since, which is the tax code being used by both parties to advance different objectives other than just, let's just try to keep it simple, keep the base broad, and keep rates low. That's one big major change. Second one is, at the time I was there, the committees played a very powerful role in the tax legislative process, and we followed regular order instead of a leadership-driven process. So you actually had when there were major tax proposals, we would have hearings and people would get to hear about the details of what people were thinking about. There would be long markups. Tax community would have to have a chance to see details of some of the proposals that might move forward in the process. If Ways and Means approved something and it passed the House, the process then moved to the Senate side and they would go through that process again. And maybe some things that people saw along the way, technical issues that people noticed could kind of be fixed and the proposal could be refined and issues could be addressed as proposals move through the process. Now, in recent years, we've seen more leadership-driven processes where tax proposals aren't released to the public and the tax community doesn't really get to see them often until they're pretty much fully baked and there's not much of an opportunity for people to respond. So we see a lot more things reacting to things that major changes that are already law yeah, and technical issues. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the 86 Act and the role of the chairman, I mean, obviously, you know, we had a whole book about the 86 Act, you know, showdown at Gucci Gulch, and it's very clear that the power of the chairman then, and, you know, you can say what you want about the current chairman who, you know, will have worked long and hard to get to those roles, but I don't think it's really a controversial thing to say. The power of the chairs have diminished in the intervening years for whatever reason. I'll leave it to other people to say why. And the other thing about the 86 Act is it's almost impossible to believe now in the partisan world that we live in how overwhelmingly bipartisan that was. It passed the Senate something like, you know, the original Senate version, something like 97 to 3, if I recall, somewhere around that. The original House version, I think, passed by voice vote. Like, imagine, you know, a controversial large tax bill passing by voice vote today. So, the world has changed a lot since then. And, you know, I don't know if you have a point of view why, but it pretty clearly has. Absolutely. It has changed a lot. And as I said, I wasn't there for the 86 Act, but it's interesting to me that even several years later, people were still looking to that. It seemed to me, and I may be, again, a little biased, I worked on the majority staff. My perception was that there were pretty good relationships between the majority and the minority, and things still were being done, much as they had been in the 86 Act. There was still a role for bipartisanship. And I think in recent years, we've seen tax policy more politicized. And, you know, obviously in our country, people have very different views and very strong views on different issues. And we see that reflected in tax policy decisions. You know, and that actually brings me to the third thing that I was going to say I think has changed is this role of reconciliation. We think of reconciliation now as something that one party uses when it has control over the House, the Senate, and the White House to advance its policy objectives. We saw that with the legislation called the TCJA, or Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when Republicans controlled the White House, the House and Senate, they advanced their vision of tax legislation. Then we saw last year with the um, legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act, the Democrats controlled the White House, the House and Senate, they advanced their vision of what tax legislative changes should be made. Both of those very partisan bills, they used the reconciliation process to do that. They used it in a way, both parties, that increased the deficit. Back in the 90s, 
the uh, reconciliation process was generally used to decrease the deficit. And there actually was at least one, and, and perhaps more in the 90s, bipartisan reconciliation effort. So reconciliations changed because, again, going to your point or your question, I do think we see more of a different parties have starkly different views, just consistent with the way, you know, as a country, different people have just such strongly different views on issues these days. You see that in the, in the tax policy space. And when one party controls all three levers, they use this process now to move tax legislation with just the votes of their party. But I think that has some negative ramifications for tax policy in general. Okay. So, Carol, with all those changes that you talked about, are there any things that have changed that have made the process better? Like what jumps to mind? Please give us a, you know, something to hang, to, to hang on to here. What's gotten better? You know, and that's where I'm sorry to disappoint you, John, but I struggle to figure out what's gotten better because what I largely see when I look at this from 10,000 feet up is we now have a tax code that swings dramatically from one direction to the other. If one party takes control, you know, you have this constant pendulum swinging, which is really hard for tax planning. It increases complexity. You have processes where because things aren't vetted, because people don't see things until the last minute for a variety of different reasons, the final product is not as good as it could be, and it's difficult to fix. And we now have sort of extenders on steroids where major parts of the tax code expire because they're enacted using these reconciliation procedures and there's math requirements that have to be met. And often that means you phase out things like individual rate structure. So, you know, I see in large part, just given the general, how it's a great partisan divide that we seem to have with that being reflected in tax policy, the way it is, I don't know that I see things have gotten better, but that's because I think my bias is more for a stable tax code you know, things that get plenty of sunshine before they become law. And I will admit, I'm a big fan of bipartisanship, and there doesn't seem to be that much of it. We've seen it with last year with infrastructure. You know, we see it from time to time, but on major, major things, views on tax policy are just so starkly different. So let me throw that question back to you, because I'm kind of curious, what yeah. do you think has gotten better? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me, because I'm <laughs> going to come back at you with like, I know something that's gotten better, and yeah, I think you're going to agree with me. But maybe only to the people that are working in the legislative process, right? To the staff, joint committee. Maybe it's not as visible from the outside in. But the thing that's gotten better is the technology has made the process so much easier. Imagine a time when somebody had to type on a typewriter the bills. And then you made a change and it had to go back and be retyped. Or think about the revenue estimating, how much more sophisticated I presume those revenue models have gotten because we've gotten better technology. So I think that makes the process a little smoother, more efficient in producing the bills. But maybe back to your point, like it speeds it up. Maybe it going slow wasn't a bad thing because it forced everybody to go more slowly and more transparency. But don't you think the technology's gotten better since, you know, even your time there and certainly since the 86 Act? <laughs> oh, yeah. And since the 90s, yeah, absolutely. Technology's been transformative to tax policy as well as everything in our world. I also will say that I continue to be sort of inspired by the quality of 
people who devote time working on the Hill and Treasury, IRS, really smart tax people who continue to serve in those roles. So that's something I think continues to be something that can make people feel good about the system is the quality of people who work on the Hill and in the roles in the administration. But yeah, definitely agree with you on the technology front. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you were saying to yourself, you know, I've always sort of wondered if I should work on Capitol Hill, you know, but maybe, you know, that's not a realistic thing. Wrong. I encourage you all. And I assume you do, Carol. If this is of any interest to you, they need people like you. They need smart, thoughtful people who are interested in tax policy to go up there and say, I'd like, you know, I mean, sure, you're probably going to take a pay cut if you're in the private sector going in, but it is so personally worth it to do for even a, you know, relatively short period of time. I encourage you to do that. Absolutely. I will say that job was the most fun job I've ever had. And, you know, I, I don't mean 100%. John, but, yeah. yeah, I enjoy I enjoy what, I, what I've been doing the last few years. But working on the Hill is so much fun. And the people you meet, because you're working with other tax lawyers, you're working with economists, you're working with accountants, you're working with the people, the lobbyists from different groups, cities and states, you're working with the members of Congress, you're working with people from the other chamber. It is just so much fun. You learn so much. You meet such great people. You make great friendships that last for a long, long time. I just am so grateful that I had the opportunity to work on the Hill when I did. It was transformative in terms of my career, opened my eyes to a new way of looking at things. I just learned a lot, met just incredible new people. So yeah, highly, highly recommend it. Tremendous fun. Okay, so you talked a little bit about some of these things, but again, some of the things that have made the legislation worse, I think you talked about the emergence of reconciliation as sort of the go-to strategy on big pieces of tax legislation. Other things that you would hit, what are any of the other ones? In terms of things that are troubling? That it just made tax legislation worse or the process worse? Yeah, I mean, I would say, as I said, the reconciliation, I think, has been bad because of the wild swings in tax Mm -hmm. policy. We went from, you had the TCJA in 2017 with Republicans, then you swing over to a completely different view of tax policy as the Democrats debate what they want to do. You see these wild swings. You see legislation being moved again with this more leadership or last minute process might be the better way to put it for a variety of different reasons. The tax community doesn't really get to see the details of legislation until it's on the verge of becoming law and you end up with these technical issues with reconciliation, then it becomes hard to fix technical issues in reconciliation because of the reconciliation requirements. And then even the technicals associated with reconciliation can carry some partisan political kind of baggage because they were in partisan bills. As I said, you kind of have extenders on steroids because of the way the reconciliation requirements are done. I think all of those things sort of the the reconciliation process sort of exacerbates some issues that come up when you see legislation at the very last minute and it ends up being complex and, and sometimes issues that could have been avoidable if it had gone through a more rigorous process with sunshine where people got to see it and look at what issues there were before it became law, I think would all be an improvement. Yeah, it's hard to argue with some of that. Okay, well, let's go be a little more specific now. Another question for you, a specific one. Thinking back over the years of your career, what do you think was the best piece of tax legislation, either an entire bill or even a specific provision that was enacted during your career? What would be the one thing you'd point out and say, that was good? Well, I'm going to go back to slightly before my career in tax policy and go with Tax Reform Act of 86. That's just in terms of what my personal views are. 
I like the fact that it was designed to simplify the tax code. I like the fact that it went through this long process where, you know, there were a lot of public hearings. People had a chance to, you know, debate it. I like the fact that it was bipartisan, that people listened to one another. Changes were made as the process moved forward. I think it made sense to sort of simplify the tax code and to try to say to both parties, let's not try to use the tax code to solve other issues or to make certain investments, you know, more or less desirable. Let's just keep it kind of neutral. All of that stuff makes sense to me. So to me, that is the, even though it's before my time, as I said, it was something that we still used as a touchstone in the early 90s. And I think that's the best legislation. In terms of maybe, I'll put it differently, my favorite piece of legislation might just be enterprise zones or empowerment zones, whatever you want to call it, just because that's the first thing that I got a really run with when I was a staffer on the Hill. And I worked with some really great people, different different agencies, different types of people, including economists, and trying to structure a program that satisfied a lot of different political, revenue, economic, social objectives. Trying to do that through this empowerment zone or enterprise zone was what it was originally called, provision. And that was just tremendously fun. So I'm not talking about that necessarily from some big policy perspective, but just from a personal perspective, I had a lot of fun working on that and enjoyed working with the people I did on putting that together. Yeah, you know, look, of course, we always have fond memories of things we worked on, knowing they're not perfect, right? There were always political compromises you have to make, you know, on the policy, but knowing that you know why every word of the statute is the way it is, why there's a comma here or something like, like that kind of right. stuff is, you know, we've all, everybody that's been a tax writer has those memories. So, and that, you know, it stood the test of time. Of course, we got, you know, Opportunity Zones is kind of a new spin on that, but, you know, those provisions have been with us a long, long time. Okay, flip it around the other way then. What tax provision enacting during your career do you think was the worst? You know, we don't have to make this a political, it's not a political thing. Just objectively, as a tax policy person, is there something that stands out to you and saying, that was a bad idea? I'm going to evade the uh, your question Aww. a little bit. I'm doing the political <laughs> thing, John. I'm, I'm doing like the politicians do. I'm going to answer the question I'd prefer to answer and just do a general as a general matter, I get a little heartburn over any of these tax provisions that become law without being adequately vetted, without having gone through a rigorous type of process. So there's some stuff that, again, not talking about the merits of the provision or the policy of the provisions, but several years ago, the partnership audit provision was dropped into a budget bill because they were looking for revenue and it was a leadership-driven process. And it happened that it satisfied the revenue requirements. It got dropped in, but it was still sort of in the process of baking. There were still changes that needed to be addressed, but there wasn't time. It just became law in its current form, and it needed some work. We've seen with more recent legislation, both Republican and Democratic, you know, there have been reasons why legislation hasn't been released until shortly before it passes, usually the Senate, and then it moves quickly through the process, and all of a sudden you've got a law that has issues in it, and people are reacting to it when it's already law. You know, I know people can think of can think of some of those. Those, as I said, as a general matter, are the ones that just give me the most heartburn because, you know, having complicated provisions suddenly become law, and then having to somehow figure out how do you address things that are 
technical imperfections that if there had been more time or if it had been publicly vetted beforehand, maybe could have been addressed. How do you address those when they become law? Does Treasury have authority to fix them? Do you need technical corrections or technical corrections even possible to get done? How long will it take? So I just clump that stuff, regardless of what you think of the policy of any of those things. Those things just give me some heart for it. Fair enough. Well, I'm not afraid to be specific. I'll give you one that I think was just ill-advised. And I'm not afraid to say it because I wrote it. I was one of the writers of it. It was just a terrible, it turned out to be a terrible idea. Uh, And these are the capped tax credits that you have to submit an application for. And then somebody in the government reviews your application and then ultimately decides whether or not you're worthy of a credit. And the credit is capped. So it's not like, you know, R&D. If you qualify, you get it. It was, if you qualify, then you still have to ask permission and there's, because there's a finite amount. And I'm thinking like 48 cap A, B, C, D. Having seen those in practice, process of rewarding those credits is inherently political because you're leaving it to a bureaucrat somewhere in some agency in the government to say, I like this one or I don't like this one. And I just think looking back, and I know why we did it when we did it, because we were trying to manage the cost. It turned out to not be a good idea. I would tell Congress, don't do that anymore, even though we have a new round of that now. I just think that the track record of those haven't been great. All right. Let me ask you one last question then, Carol. We talked a little bit about, hey, everybody, if you have any interest in working on Capitol Hill, come on down, take that job. What advice would you have for the future tax writers on Capitol Hill? Things that they should or shouldn't do. What sage counsel would you give them? Well, for members of Congress, what I'm going to say is probably politically not possible, but to the extent you can listen to the other side, whether it's tax policy or anything, and kind of keep an open mind, listen to the other side. I think that's a good thing and can sometimes lead to better policy and, you know, thinking about things different ways can often be a positive thing. I also, from the member perspective, and again, I realize this may be politically unrealistic, trying to move back to regular order where on significant changes in tax policy, you have hearings and you move through deliberate markups. And even though releasing something to the public might unleash a bunch of lobbyists who start lobbying against it and it can create issues, it can also allow people to see problems that you can fix on the front end. So again, maybe a little unrealistic, but to the extent that it's possible to have more opportunity for people to react to legislation, to study it before it becomes law, I think that would be helpful. From the people who are staff, I would say the same thing that, you know, work with one another. I know I had a lot of friendships. I didn't care. Frankly, I wasn't very political when I worked on the Hill to begin with. But, you know, work with, get to know and become friends with everybody, regardless of what side they're working for. And just enjoy it. As I said, it's a fascinating, eye-opening experience. And you just get such an opportunity to to meet so many interesting people and work with such great people. So I would say if you work up there, savor the experience and get to know as many people and learn from them as much as you can. Amen. Well, Carol, let's leave it as that being the last word. I just wanted to thank you for all you've added over the years, added to this podcast, added to the many wonderful materials you've published here for the wisdom you provided, given to me, that made me better at my job. And I want to thank you for being a good friend. I hope you enjoy retirement. I will miss you. The team will miss you. And I'm certain our listeners will miss you too. 
in parting, just a couple thoughts and reflections on the conversation that Carol and I just had. You know, I think it's easy to listen to what we said and about how the tax policy process isn't what it used to be decades ago and listen to, go, you know, that's just a couple of cranky old timers, you know, reminiscing about the way things once were and, uh, you know, sort of the get off my lawn approach to tax policy. And fair enough. But here's the thing. The things that we talked about, I think, are objectively true, right? These are just not opinions. So the legislative process has gotten faster and not necessarily in a good way because taxpayers do have less ability to weigh in on the wisdom or how to draft a particular piece of legislation. I think there's almost certainly, undeniably, less transparency about the legislative process than there once was. I think that the tax law is undeniably become less administrable. We are going through a season of huge amounts of regulatory guidance to try and turn that legislative process into something administrable. That was also true after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I think it's also undeniably true that tax legislation has become less bipartisan in the decades since Carol and even I worked on the Hill. Now, if you listen to all that and you say, well, how can Congress allow that to happen? We just, you know, they, they, they have to do something about that. Here's the thing. The things we just talked about, those are not bugs of the system. They are features of the system. The system is operating that way for a reason. And it is generally that that's the fastest and most sure way to get legislation signed into law. And if that makes you mad, well, I get it. Or if you think that is not sustainable, fair enough. But here's the thing. If it makes you mad when the other side does it, but it doesn't make you mad when your side does it. Well, and there are plenty of people like that. And you have to ask, well, who's really the problem here? And I think we all have to be honest with ourselves as a tax community that until the tax community says, we need greater transparency and deliberation in the legislative process, no matter who is doing it, then I think we're just likely to get more of what we got. And the trends that we talked about today will continue and maybe accelerate. So I know that's not the brightest, sunniest topic for a January afternoon, but I think that's a reality. In parting, just one last thank you to Carol for the many wonderful contributions she made to this podcast and to the many things that we do. And I wish her the very best and relaxing of retirements. And with that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.